You're listening to the Elvis Ultimate Fan Channel Podcast, the channel that is devoted 100% to the life and career of the biggest selling recording artist of all time, with your host, Steve Francis. Hello and welcome to this episode from Elvis the Ultimate Fan Channel. Cleveland disc jockey Bill Randall introduced Elvis Presley on his national television debut on the Dorsey Brothers program, Stage Show, Saturday night, January 28, 1956. I'm joined on the line now by Roger Hall, who is a music preservationist and a 1960s songwriter and drew his inspiration from Elvis songs. He witnessed Elvis's first television appearance and later worked with Bill, who told him stories about Elvis and his manager, Tom Parker. Hi, Roger, and thanks for joining me on the show today. Hi, it's good to be here. Uh, now, I mentioned in my uh, introduction about uh, Cleveland disc jockey Bill Randall, and he introduced Elvis on the uh, the Dorsey Brothers program. Um, just just tell me a little bit about the background to that and, and so forth, and what led up to that. Well, uh, as far as I can recall, you know, that was a number of years ago, back in the 70s, when I talked to him. He told me that he was very impressed with Elvis when he first saw him in uh, 55. When he came to Cleveland, I think it was February of 55, he did a show in Cleveland called the Hillbilly Jamboree that was put on by another DJ, uh, Tommy Edwards, who was uh, on the same station with Bill Randall. And uh, he heard Elvis at that particular show and he was very impressed. And he actually talked to Elvis after the show and he felt that he was an up-and-coming star in the making. And so he, uh, he said that I'm going to make a film short in the, in the coming months, and I'd like you to be on it. And uh, that's how it started, by bringing it up to Elvis. Uh, when he was, that was the first time I think he performed in the north, so-called, north of, uh, of the, from the south, uh, in, in 55, February 55. First, first show he did outside of the southern states in the U.S. So it was kind of significant. But uh, the fact that Bill Randall was there, and he was a very prominent DJ. He was called the top jock in the USA by a, a magazine here in the States. So he was very influential, not just in Cleveland, but in, the, in that whole region, wherever that radio station carried to. Uh, he was very influential, and he he really promoted a lot of the people he admired. Uh, he didn't have to necessarily work for a uh, record company or anything. He did it on his own. And Elvis was one of those people that impressed him. So he uh, was able to get, he had made some other film shorts from what I read. I, he didn't tell me this, but I read it uh, about some other popular singers. This wasn't the first one he did. But this one, of course, uh, was really special because you had people like Bill Haley and the Comets, you had Pat Boone, the Ford Lads, these were all people that had hit songs at that time in the 50s. Uh, and Elvis was not that well known in, in the northern states, outside of the south. So uh, it was somewhat of a risk to put Elvis on. And one of the things he told me is the director of, of that film short, his name was Arthur Cohen, didn't really like the Elvis performance when he saw it. He didn't want to put him in the in the film. And so Bill uh, hired a cameraman on his own to film the Elvis footage. He sang five songs. And uh, he actually owned that film. It was not owned by the, the studio. The studio was going to release it. It was Universal Pictures. But uh, Bill actually owned that footage. And so that's one of the reasons why uh, I've read that they couldn't find any records of it in the film uh, library of Universal. Now, just, just to, to to emphasize that this was actually in October 1955. This was obviously before Elvis' debut on the TV show. Right. And the, the title was The Pied Piper of Cleveland. That's right. Mm -hmm. okay. That's that's the title he came up with. Uh, it was also called Top Jock. Uh, uh -huh. That was, a, I think that was an early title. But... Uh, that was all Bill Randall's doing. I mean, he was a real mover and shaker, you might say. He uh, he really was very much up on what was going on in the music business at that time. And he really could sense that Elvis had a lot of potential. So uh, he, he really wanted to be sure that he was in this in this film short. 
And the film short wouldn't have been that long, maybe 15 minutes. And you think all those acts, it wouldn't have been much of anything, maybe one song from each each artist. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he wanted to be sure that Elvis was part of that because he he really felt that he he was an up-and-coming young singer. So he, uh, he wanted to be sure that he was in on that. And he was also, Elvis happened to be uh, in Cleveland, too. He was there, I think, for a show for the, the Hillbilly Jamboree, maybe. He was there for that. Uh, because Tommy Edwards was also in this film short. There's some pictures out there on the Internet, some people may have seen, of, uh, of Bill and Tommy Edwards and Elvis and his, uh, and his guys uh, there at the time of the filming in 55, October 20th, was actually when the show took place. In 55. Now, some people have said, well, did that really take place? Was it really happened? Yes, it definitely did, because there are pictures of it, and they're not stage pictures. And he told me very emphatically that it was definitely filmed, uh, and that he had the footage. This was in on 74, 75, when I talked to him. Uh-huh. He said there was definitely the film, and he had it in a vault. He was waiting for a time when he could release it, and it would have the most impact. And I can tell you how, how it got sold, if you want to know that. Yes, please. Yeah, I'd be very, very interested. I'm sure our listeners would be as well, yes. Yeah, okay. Well, many years later, back in, it was in the, around 1992, I believe it was, uh, there was a guy named Ray Santilli, who is a London-based uh, Italian musician and film producer. He uh, approached uh, Bill, and he wanted to buy this footage. And after a lot of haggling back and forth, uh, Bill agreed to sell it to Ray Santilli, who then turned around and sold it to Polygram, which was a British uh, company. I don't think they exist anymore. But uh, he sold it to them for $2 million. This is according to an article I read. Um, and then it disappeared. And nobody knows what happened after that happened. Uh, Bill said that he definitely sold it to this guy, but he didn't claim it was for two, uh, a million or two. He said that was a lot of baloney. So my guess is that he sold it for less than that. But in any case, Ray Santilli, who is still alive, I believe, in London, living in London, uh, he had the footage and nothing happened with it. I, I think he probably tried to get it uh, released, or the polygram maybe tried to get it released. And the story was, well, maybe because Colonel Tom, in his way of squeezing money out of people, uh, wanted a huge royalty on it. But I think if you pay $2 million yeah. for a film short, you're not going to quibble over, say, 50000 even, which is a lot of money then. Uh, you're going to pay it because, you know, with Elvis being, you know, in this peak of his stardom there in this 56 and, and later, of course, in the, by the 90s, he was a huge star. So uh, I don't believe that, that that was the case, that Colonel Tom put a, put a nix on it. Uh, although Colonel Tom did want to promote Elvis and he wanted him to have his contract with RCA, he really felt that uh, he had you know, a gold mine. He knew he had a gold mine. And, uh, and Bill even said that about Colonel Tom. He, he said he was, you know, he was a fast buck uh, carnival barker and uh, he knew what he had and he, you know, he wrote, wrote it to, to success. Yes. For now, just, now to, just for anybody that's, uh, you, you mentioned Ray Santilli there a couple of times. For anybody that's thinking, I know that name, where have I heard that name before? He was connected with the alien autopsy uh, footage, right. wasn't he? That's uh, since been uh, um, shown to be fake. That's right. Yes, that's right. It's the same person, right. And I think he's released a couple of Elvis videos. I, I looked online, I saw there was a couple of titles, but I doubt that it's that footage. Uh, if it was, he would have certainly uh, promoted it. So I don't know what happened to that footage. Nobody seems to know. And there's also the possibility the footage wasn't that good. Yeah, but that's the thing that people don't realize. That you know, this was done by a cameraman, probably in a rush job, and maybe it was out of focus or something like that. And or maybe the video, the audio wasn't very good. So you know, people who you know been aching to see this footage, they they may, may be disappointed if it's ever found. But almost any unseen footage now of Elvis is is priceless, especially for oh, yeah. for fans like myself. Uh, oh yeah, sure. Now, can, can we just um, say the memories of the people that were there that day of Elvis? Apparently, a lot of people said that he was painfully shy, and he was petrified with fear. Uh huh. 
Yes, that's. Uh, I think Pat Boone said that. Yeah, yeah, I think, uh, well, because he was probably painfully shy. The thing that's interesting about that is that he may have been very shy when he talked to people, but when he got on stage, he became what I call electric. I call him Electric Elvis. Yes. Because yeah. especially in 55, 56, around that time, when he was really, you know, breaking out, he just came alive when he got on stage, you know, because I watched that first uh, national TV appearance in 56 when I was just a teenager. And I was really impressed with, you know, how he carried himself when he sang those songs. Uh, you know, it really got to me. I mean, I was sort of interested in the music anyway, in rock and roll. Uh, but, you know, he, I could see that he was different. That, you know, he was, as I say, electric. I mean, he just lit up, uh, lit up the camera, basically, when he was on stage. And that was proven with the other television appearances he made. That's really, I believe, how he became such a national sensation it was from television as well as from the records that he made in uh, in 50, 56 especially uh, because before that with sun records you know he had obviously some hits with with sun but it was really when he got to uh, RCA and they promoted him heavily of course uh, with the TV shows yeah i mean you you can see his confidence growing through the the television shows uh, you know, when you see the the first one on January the twenty eighth, you know he he can he can barely wait to 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 sing the songs and then get off, and then you can just see him growing through the you know the shows and then the Milton Berle shows and the Steve Allen shows. But of course, the Steve Allen show uh, is, is very it's a very touchy subject with a lot of fans because of the way Steve yeah. treated him. Right. Yes, I agree. I felt the same way. They really sort of made fun of him. I mean, they portrayed him as kind of a country. Bumpkin, yeah. he sang, you know, Hound Dog to a real Hound Dog. <laughs> yeah. And he hated that. I, I don't blame him for hating it. I didn't like it either. I thought that was really poor, yeah. what uh, Steve Allen did. And then he put him in a country, uh, country comedy routine. Uh, they just sort of treated him as a joke. Yes. Uh, and I think the, those of us who were fans of Elvis uh, really didn't like that at all. We, uh, we have on record, actually, what he was wearing that day during the filming. Uh, he was wearing a red sports jacket and white suede shoes. Um, so even if he was sort of painfully shy, he wasn't shy about his clothes, that's for sure. No, that's true. He, he was a flashy dresser. And, and Bill told me something about that. He said that even though he was very shy, he liked to dress up in, in flashy clothes and his hair was kind of greasy and he... Uh, he looked kind of dangerous, actually, yeah. and, and the girls loved that. You know, the young girls, they, they just couldn't get enough of that. Uh, that, that look, that dangerous look, because, you know, it's a time of, of James Dean and movies and, and uh, Marlon Brando, you know, those kind of tough guys, and uh, Elvis sort of, I think he picked up on that, because he, he liked both uh, James Dean and Marlon Brando movies. So th that 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 filming has now become the the holy grail of of Elvis's career, really, hasn't it? And, and if it ever turns up, uh, it will be it will probably be a sight to behold. Although, like you say, you know the, the quality might not be as good as we were hoped for. That's true. Yeah, yeah. It's it's one of those great mysteries. Uh, there is a fellow, uh, Chris Kennedy, who wrote a very good book on uh, on Tommy Edwards, a wonderful book with color pictures including pictures from that uh, that film date in October 55. And uh, he sort of thinks that he's looking for it. He said he's come damn close a few times, but uh, I, I haven't heard anything from him recently, so I don't know if he's still on the, on the trail. But it would take somebody doing a lot of detective work, and you'd have to, you know, be traveling quite extensively, especially uh, like to, to London and, or maybe out to Hollywood even yes. to find out. Yes. What uh, what might be possible to find, if anything? So so the next time then Bill came into contact with uh, Elvis was obviously on the Saturday night, uh, January twenty eighth, nineteen fifty six. Um, just tell us a little bit about that. He, he was called on to introduce Elvis, wasn't he? Yeah, he did because he had a radio show in New York at that time. He not only had the Cleveland radio show, but he also had a radio show in New York. I think it was on a Saturday night. And so he was in town anyway, and he, he, he knew a lot of the people on TV. Uh, on, that was CBS. Uh, it was actually the Jackie Gleason show. It was uh, an hour show, I believe, and the first half hour was 
the Jackie Gleason comedy show called The Honeymooners. And I think the second half was with the Dorsey brothers called Stage Show. Mm -hmm. And uh, and Bill probably knew the Dorsey brothers. I wouldn't be surprised because he knew a lot of the well-known musicians at that time. So he was a natural person to call in to introduce Elvis. But he did make a point of mentioning that film short. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to present one of the radio's most listened to disc jockeys, Bill Randall. William? We'd like at this time to introduce you to a young fellow who, like many performers, Johnny Ray among them, come up out of nowhere to be overnight very big stars. This young fellow we saw for the first time while making a movie short, we think tonight that he's going to make television history for you. We'd like you to meet him now, Elvis Presley, and here he is. As people know if they've seen that, that footage, that he said, you know, I, I met Elvis when we were making a movie short. So, I mean, that obviously proves he wouldn't be saying that on national TV if it didn't happen. Exactly. exactly. You know, so it, it definitely happened. But I think, uh, you know, El, uh, Bill was happy to introduce Elvis because he was such a fan and he really tried to promote him. He actually got Elvis an audition before that telecast on the Arthur Godfrey Talent Scout show, which was a popular TV show. But Elvis didn't make it because he was ill-prepared. He came in and he was wasn't dressed very well, and he kind of stumbled through his numbers, and they, they didn't accept him. So, uh, you know, he had his chance earlier on, but he didn't make it. But this time, I don't know if he just felt that he had to, you know, had to really perform well, or he was still nervous, as you as you mentioned. When he was on, you could tell he was kind of jittery yeah. in his performance. Yeah. But uh, what got me was that he was so dynamic in his singing, you know, how he sang the songs. Uh, and he sang Shake, Rattle, and Roll. Yeah, well, I, this this is what I was just about to say that. Now, um, a couple of weeks before this broadcast, he recorded Heartbreak Hotel. It was going, uh -huh. to, it was going to be released as a single with the B-side, I Was The One. But he didn't choose to sing that on the show. Well, I can tell you why. Because okay. the, uh, RCA uh, didn't want him to do it. They wanted to have a build-up of that song. They didn't want it to be introduced on the first uh, telecast. It was only, you know, a few weeks later. They were nervous about him. They weren't sure he was going to make it, you know, just because he was popular in, in the southern area and maybe even in Cleveland. They weren't sure that he was, you know, he was the type of person that they, they could uh, be successful with because he was still relatively unknown in the country. And so they wanted to be sure that he was seen on TV for a few weeks before he did Heartbreak Hotel. Now, Colonel Tom loved Heartbreak Hotel, and he wanted, I think he probably wanted Elvis to do it on that first telecast, but the RCA people who had the contract uh, said no. So that, I think that's, that's the reason that he didn't sing it on that first telecast. He didn't sing it until February the 11th. Which, right. is, which is a whole month and a day after he first recorded it. That's right. But I think the song had been released, so it was oh, you yes. know, getting yes. becoming popular. And by the time he sang it on February 11th, I think uh, a lot of people had heard the recording of it. Uh, I know I bought a copy. I don't remember when I bought it, but I bought it that year. Uh, so, I mean, it wasn't like, you know, it came out of nowhere. I mean, the record was out, and it was starting to climb the charts probably at that time. So uh, you know, RCA was kind of fruit in a way that they did that. They kind of held it back until he, you know, he's better known. You know, by February he was uh, he had been on a few times, and th and those people who watched that show, you know, the Jackie Gleason part of the show was very popular. It was one of the most popular Saturday night shows at that time. So uh, and the stage show was kind of a fill-in. Uh, Jackie Gleason was funny because he he. Sometimes he wanted to go out and play golf rather than be on TV. So he, he would change the format of his show. He would uh, sometimes have just his show on, but then sometimes he would have uh, the guest people coming on and filling in. And that's what happened with the Dorsey Brothers uh, stage show. Of course, they were big band musicians, and I'm not sure they loved Elvis. I think they sort of uh, sort of put up with him in a sense. Uh, and they sort of pretended in a way that, you know, here comes Elvis again, trying to be positive because that's what they had to do. But I'm not sure they, they were crazy about his music. 
Now, I think uh, a lot of people saw him at that time as a, a curiosity and, yeah. and, and, a, and a flash in the pan. Yeah, right. I think that's true. And certainly a lot of people in the press felt that way and wrote negative comments about him, of course, all through that time, uh, about his performances on TV especially, uh, which had a, had some impact on the older generation, probably maybe the parents, but not the young people. The young people sort of rebelled against that those negative comments about Elvis and how he gyrated. And that term, Elvis the pelvis, which he hated, and I don't blame him because yeah, yes. it's a derogatory term. Yes. Uh, that that is something that the press, you know, uh, picked up and and used to sort of uh, make fun of him in a sense. A lot of negative stuff that was going on with, about Elvis in those days. And, and as time went on, people wanted to learn more and more about him. And there, there's a there's a lovely uh, quote from uh, Dixie Locke, his then girlfriend. Um, about about his <laughs> what he, what he what he would like to eat. She says he ate uh, eight deluxe cheeseburgers, two bacon lettuce tomato sandwiches, and topped it off with three chocolate milkshakes. Yeah, but well, you know what I also read about that after I don't know if she said it or somebody else said it. Said, well, Elvis was a growing boy, <laughs> <laughs> and it's true he had quite an appetite for food as well as for music. I think he was hungry basically hungry for whatever he could uh, he could consume including uh, all that food you mentioned uh, he had quite an appetite uh, did uh, bill randall tell you any uh, stories about elvis and the colonel when 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 you were with him in the 70s not really what he kept telling me is that uh, colonel tom as he called him uh, was quite a, a fast buck uh, person who, you know, was out for money. In fact, there's a quote I saw somewhere that, that Colonel Tom told Elvis, we do not socialize. Our great interest is money. Wow. That's what he told. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's a lot of stories about Colonel Tom and, uh, you know, Atlanta Nash had a great book on the Colonel. She, uh, she gives a wonderful uh, evaluation of him. Um, but uh, I think Bill was sort of uh, amused by him somewhat, but also a little bit put off by him because he was so insistent on, you know, taking over, which he did. Because at the time that that film was done in 55, Colonel Tom was just showing the interest in Elvis and writing around to different people to find out, you know, how he could, uh, you know, become his manager. And then he got the uh, agreement from Elvis's parents, uh, Gladys and uh, Vernon Presley, so uh, around that time, I think it was in 55 uh, or maybe 56, uh, Colonel Tom was, you know, he was just out to get Elvis. And Bill, who was at one time asked by Elvis to be his manager, Elvis was impressed with Bill, Bill Randall, and uh, he asked him straight out if he would be his manager. And Bill told him, no, I don't want to go on the road and go through all of that hassle. So he turned him down. But... Uh, he might have been his manager if he agreed to it. Yeah, and it might have been a lot different. I don't know what would have happened, but uh, he he just said that he didn't want to get involved in that. Uh, he wanted to stay in Cleveland. He was happy with his radio show, and he was making a lot of money too. Uh, I don't know from what. <laughs> <laughs> it could be from kickbacks or who knows what, because there was a lot of things going on at that time, with uh, you know money being tr transferred around. So uh, he was doing quite well uh, on the radio, and he had a good contract with the radio station, too. Um, they gave him a good contract because he was, I think he was the most popular uh, DJ on, on that station, W-E-R-E, -E in, uh, in Cleveland. Okay, okay. so uh, we, we've started off 1956 with the debut television appearance, and Elvis finished the year uh, filming his first movie, Love Me Tender. Now, you've got a little bit of information about the uh, songwriting and recording of the song Love Me Tender, haven't you? Right, yeah. That's on my site. Early Elvis is a website that people can look up. Uh, but I can just tell you briefly, uh, a lot of people have said that was written by Elvis. No, it's a big lie. Elvis had nothing to do with it. In fact, I think he even said that he never wrote any songs. And it was credited to also to Vera Matson. Now, the story is 
and I got this right from the, the man who wrote it. It was written by Ken Darby, who was a songwriter and arranger for, uh, I think he worked at 20th Century Fox Studios. And he wrote the, he wrote the song. It's based on a Civil War song, Aura Lee, and he rearranged it and added his own words. He also wrote all the other songs, the other three songs in the film. So he wrote all the songs. But the thing is, here's Colonel, Colonel Tom again taking over. He insisted that Elvis' name beyond get credit for writing the song. And this is something that bothers a lot of people, that you know, a lot of times these songwriters don't get the proper credit. However, Ken Darby said, even though he didn't get the credit, he didn't really want the credit at that time, he thought Elvis was not going to last. He thought he, you know, he would just disappear after he made that movie. So he didn't care. But he also turned out that he made a lot of money in the end because his wife, who was a co-writer, got the royalties from that record, and it helped him to buy a, a, a wonderful uh, uh, yacht. They bought a yacht from the royalties of uh, Love Me Tender, that, re that record. So he, he didn't feel too bad about it because uh, he made out pretty well from, from the royalties from it. But he's absolutely, he is the one who should be credited, Ken Darby, as the songwriter for all those songs in Love Me Tender. And, of course, Elvis liked Love Me Tender. He didn't care much for the other three songs. But I kind of think they're, they're nice songs. They're obviously not fit the movie very well, but it doesn't matter. Uh, and I actually played one of them on a, a tribute I did to Elvis. Uh, I had a radio show called In the Mood, which was mostly big band music, but I also played uh, songs of the 50s. And on August 16th, I think that's the day he died, mm -hmm. In 1993, I played Poor Boy, which is from one of the songs from that, that movie, as sort of a tribute to Elvis, who started as a poor boy. You know, to me, that's a wonderful story of somebody who made good from being very poor to being obviously very rich and famous, who always seemed to have a, a sense of uh, where he came from. He had good values. You know, that's one of the things that impressed me about him. Uh, he was a fan of, of gospel music. That was his favorite music, uh, which I also like a lot. I think that's some of his best recordings, the gospel ones. Uh, so he he really, uh, I think he epitomized it, good qualities. Uh, unfortunately, the press continued to run him down all the time, make fun of him or criticize him, call him Elvis the Pelvis. Uh, but I think that uh, in Love Me Tender, um, he really, he wanted to be an actor, of course. Uh, he wanted to be in a straight dramatic role. He didn't even want to sing in his films. But unfortunately, Colonel Tom, supposedly, it got him into these, these terrible musicals in the 60s, which uh, some are better than others, of course. But basically, I think Elvis got so tired of those, uh, those musicals he had to make in the 60s that he didn't want any more part of it by the end of the 60s. But Love Me Tender, he thought, was the beginning of his acting career. And then when he made, you know, Jailhouse Rock and Loving You and especially King Creole, which I think is his best acting performance, uh, he, he really was thinking that he would become an actor, especially he admired James Dean a great deal, that he would be like James Dean. He would be known for his acting as well as his singing. Uh, that's, what, that's, that's at least what I have read. So he was uh, he, he was looking forward to you know a, a, an acting career when he made Love Me Tender as much as the singing. Well, yes, it, it, it's it's quite correct what you say. Um, when Love Me Tender first started, uh, Elvis didn't even realize he was going to be asked to sing, and they actually worked in some of the songs. Uh, he actually told his girlfriend at the time, uh, June Juanico, that they'd uh, asked him to sing some songs, and he was unhappy about it. Right. Yes, that's true. And his group wasn't with him. You know, he didn't have uh, Scotty Moore and uh, Bill Black. Uh, they had a studio group. I think it was Ken Darby's group that he brought yes. in. Yes. 20th Century Fox didn't want to take a chance on Bill and Scotty. So, right. Yeah, that's right. But he did have him, I think, in uh, in the next one. Loving You, I think, was the next film he made. Yeah, I think, I think they, they, they they were in that. Yeah, and, and yeah, they were, they were in that, and uh, his mother was in that too. Yes, that's right, and they were in Jailhouse Rock and uh, and uh, and King Creole. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that was Elvis again. By that time, he had the power to you know to dictate what he wanted, 
and, and they would listen to him. But when he made Love Me Tender, he, he didn't quite have as, that much uh, you know, power over the studio that he had later on. No. He, he definitely wanted to, to be an actor. I mean, he really, he loved uh, you know, the, act, the young actors like uh, James Dean and uh, Marlon Brando, those people. Uh, and he wanted to be like them. It was the only film that showed Elvis dying in as well. And they kind of rewrote the ending uh, and showed Elvis in lap dissolve singing over the end credits, didn't they? That's true. Yeah. Uh, he, 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 uh, they hinted him dying in Flaming Star, but they don't actually show him dying. They just show him sort of riding off into the into the sunset. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's right. Yes. Well, of course, uh, you know, by then they couldn't uh, they couldn't dare say Elvis died anywhere. Correct. But even in Love Me Tender, you know, because he was really a big star by the time that film came out, they just felt that, you know, the audience, the young people wouldn't accept, especially the girls, wouldn't accept. And his mother, of course, cried when she saw that. Mm. And, and I think uh, that had an impact on him, too. He was very close to his mother, as you know. So, uh, you know, she was quite upset that that ending happened that way. But you're right that they, they put that sort of dissolve in at the end where he sang to sort of imply that somehow he lived on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they wanted to not be too downbeat with an ending. Um, there was a very, actually, I, I, f- I forgot about this till now. There's a very interesting uh, audio file you sent me of Bill reading out uh, letters sent to Elvis on his show. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, let's listen to that now. Really like Elvis Presley. And I forgot to remember to forget, says that's my favorite record. Likes Tootie Fruity, too. That comes up in about 15 minutes. Here's a letter from Phyllis Wish, W-I-S-C-H, from Shaker Junior High School. She's in the seventh grade. Says this Friday's our Christmas dance. My favorite record's Angels in the Sky. Says I don't see why all the girls go for Elvis Presley. I don't think he's so hot. Then I have a letter here. And this is a real Steve Allen type letter. You know, when Steve gets those letters and they pound and the band hollers with him. This is a real mad letter. And it's from Judy Carson out there. She says, in regards to the letter you read in the air yesterday about Elvis Presley, I think that person is absolutely crazy, underlined, one exclamation point. Me and every single one of my friends, both boys and girls, think that Elvis Presley is the greatest ever. Three exclamation points and underlined three times. Because when I heard you read that yesterday, I could have chewed nails. And she has a few rather uh, blunt opinions about the people who don't like Elvis Presley. Then she goes on to say that uh, if they don't like him, they can keep their crummy opinions to themselves. You don't have the band hollering in the background here. This, as far as bringing Elvis back to Cleveland, I, for one, and hundreds of others will be there to see him at any time, any place, and under any circumstances. And she goes on to say, I love Elvis Presley. Wow, three exclamation points. The whole general idea is that she digs Elvis the most. For all of the people in Cleveland who have made Elvis overnight one of the really gigantic stars in this particular area, here he is. He's destined to be the big new star of 1956, Elvis Presley. Scotty and Bill, and I forgot to remember to forget. And it was, it's, it's very interesting to hear somebody actually saying they thought Elvis wasn't that hot. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, that, you know, that's the, uh, the audience at that time, because he was still so new that there were some young people, some of the young girls especially, who, who were fans of other singers. And I don't know who, who there was. I mean, they probably had some favorite singer that was popular then. You know, there were a lot of pop singers around at that time, uh, like Eddie Fisher was one, I think, a young one, and uh, Pat Boone, of course, was coming on strong. And, of course, Pat Boone was so different from Elvis, even though Pat Boone came from, I think he came from Tennessee, I think he sort of admired Elvis a little bit, even though he was so shy when he met him. Um, he, he said when he went on stage in that 55 uh, film footage, that uh, he was impressed with how, how dynamic he was. Mm. And one thing that should be mentioned is this is written up in some of the write-ups about that film, is that when Elvis, I think he did a repeat show, he did two shows that day, 55, and the repeat show, he broke a string on his guitar and he got so mad he smashed the guitar on the stage. Wow. And, and the audience went wild. And they had to clear the place out. I mean, it was like a riot because he, he just spontaneously smashed the guitar on the stage you know and nobody expected that kind of thing to happen then so uh, that was quite a sensation and, and the other thing too is that there were a lot of girl fans of pat boone you know pat boone was very popular then mm. with 
So, uh, you know, they had to be very careful. They had to have a lot of protection from the uh, from the audience, the females in the audience especially, um, because, you know, they were crazy for Pat Boone as much as for Elvis. But after he, he, he smashed that guitar, I mean, people just went crazy. It was like, you know, he opened up a, a door and everybody rushed out. You know, it was just incredible. And his clothes got ripped and everything. It was quite a scene. And back in 55, that was not something very common. You know, that became more common later on. Yeah, and I was I was going to say, you know, uh, bands like The Who and, and, and those sort of rock bands would do that in the 70s. They'd smash up the, the guitars and the amplifiers and everything. But, I mean, Elvis had done that 20 years earlier. Right, that's right, yeah. And it was spontaneous. I don't think it was any, you know, setup or anything. He just was mad, you know. Yeah. And he just he just lost it and, and smashed the guitar. That was it. Uh, and that's the thing about him, I think, at that time especially, he was very spontaneous. It wasn't like he was studied or rehearsed or, you know, told what to do. And even throughout his career, I think, he was more or less an independent person. You know, he, he did what he wanted to do. And, uh, of course, when he became popular, he was allowed to do what he wanted to do. <laughs> but back then, you know, he didn't have as much freedom. But still, he, he always, I think, tended to be thinking independently of uh, what he was doing uh, in his performances, especially, not so much outside of that. Uh, he, he was uh, electric, as I say, because, uh, you know, he worked for Electric Company, too. Yeah, Crown, not... Crown Electric. <laughs> right, yeah. But uh, that's just another, you know, another side to it. But I, I just feel that he sort of lit up the stage. That's why I say electric, because uh, when he came on, he sort of moseyed out. You know, the first uh, time he came out in '56, he sort of waltzed out there. Uh, but he was like, as I think uh, Peter Gralnick said, he was like shot out of a cannon. That's a good description. Yeah. He he was like, you know, ready to go. I mean, he was primed to get out there and do his thing. And then he got off quick. You know, he did, at that time, he was kind of shy on stage. And, of course, as you say, over the years, over that year, he became more uh, comfortable with being on camera. He was uh, called the atomic-powered singer in, in 1956, wasn't he, on some, yeah. on some billboards? Yeah, I know. There were all kinds of uh, names that they had for him. Uh, he was before that, before he became popular, he was called the hillbilly cat. Yeah. And I think there was another name they had for him in the South, especially. Uh, so he, yeah, he had, a, and of course the Elvis the pelvis, which he didn't want anybody to use, but they did. Um, but he was, as he said, he was just a singer. And he was a singer who assimilated both the blues uh, tradition and the country tradition. And that's why, and I, as a white singer, he was really, uh, you know, he's bringing them both together. And that's, I think, he deserves a lot of credit for that. Not that he was the only one, but he was the one who probably made it uh, most important. You know, you know, merging the the black and the white traditions together. Basically, I think that's uh, that's his greatest asset, and that includes even with the gospel music. You know, um, it's mostly white gospel, but uh, you know, he had his uh, backup singers. You know, were uh, black and white both singing. So I mean, he had no prejudice against that. And uh, I think that's a credit to him also. Okay, so all the information that we've discussed uh, this evening, where can people go to read up about that? Well, I have a couple of web. I have a couple of uh, computer discs. I don't know if, if people are interested in. I have one that's strictly about Elvis and Bill Randall. It's called Fake, Rattle, and Roll. And the other one is about Bill Randall's career, not just about Elvis, but about the Shakers and on the other things that he was involved in. It's called the Bill Randall Chronicles. And they're both available on on my website, which is AmericanMusicPreservation.com. Or if you look up Early Elvis on Google or whatever search engine you use, you can probably find it that way. But on the Early Elvis page, there is a description of those, uh, those computer disks, CD-ROMs they are. But also a lot about uh, Elvis's career, his early career. This is called early Elvis, uh, mainly the '50s and early '60s, uh, including a song that maybe some of the fans—I don't know if it would be a favorite of theirs or not. It's now or never, 
which I've read was the favorite song of Elvis. And I think it's his greatest recording, frankly. Mm-hmm. I think it's a terrific recording from 1960. Um, and uh, so there's some information about that song and as well as his gospel music and uh, uh, about his early hit songs. For example, in the first two years of his success, he had 10 number one songs. I don't know if anybody has equaled that, maybe the Beatles. But uh, 10 in two years, that's a pretty phenomenal yes. record, I think, yes. for any singer. So, I mean, if people want to check it out, I would say to look at the early Elvis uh, page on AmericanMusicPreservation.com, and uh, they can get some information on that, or they can order the discs if they want. Well, I'll include the link in the comment section of this uh, podcast and YouTube video. Uh, so if people want to just click on that, they'll, they'll go straight to that. Also, I, I, I could say that um, if people want to know more about that, that film, you know, that is the Holy Grail, I would say that somebody should try to contact the people who were involved. Now, some of the people who were in that film, is, I think there's only one or two of them left, some of the uh, crew cuts, uh, that, that group that played with Bill Haley, are still alive, I think. They may still be performing. And the other one was Patricia Wright, who was a young singer back then. I think she lives in Canada. Uh, to talk to them and ask them what they remember about that uh, film, because they may have some things to add. Uh, I mean, they've been asked, I suppose, by people over the years. But if somebody wanted to do a research project, I think that would be a good one. And certainly try to find if that film exists. I think it would be very hard to find it at this point. Uh, that footage, I, I just think it either disappeared, disintegrated, <laughs> turned to dust, or uh, it may be lying somewhere on a shelf in a mislabeled film can. That's the other possibility, I yes, think. Yes, that's right. That's right, yeah. Um, and, uh, I, I might even uh, take up uh, the job myself to do a little bit of research on it. Yeah, well, I mean, Polygram, I don't know the story on that uh, on that company, but it was a British company, and I think either went out of business or got bought up by somebody. And so uh, in the London, the records may still be in London or wherever they keep them. Uh, that might be a place to check to see if, uh, you know, there might be any, uh, you know, anything there, any, uh, any films that can be checked. Uh, they may still have a film library somewhere. That's the best hope, I would say, of finding this lost footage, that it might be in some film can somewhere that's not labeled properly. Um, that would be my guess. Uh, a few months ago, there was a, a little sliver of film discovered of Elvis and Johnny Cash. Did you see mm-hmm. that? So, you know, it's not beyond uh, belief that uh, this could still turn up. The Pied Piper of Cleveland could still turn up. That's true, uh, and it would be great if it did, even if it's not great quality. I think the fans would love to see it because that's really the first filmed uh, performance. I mean, he had some, you know, home movies that were done when he was performing in Memphis area, yeah, uh, which are kind of, you know, crude. Uh, and, you know, they're fun to watch, but uh, this, you know, this was an actual performance, a concert, so yeah. uh, it's different. Uh, and I don't know what happened to the other footage. Uh, I mean, if from what I understand from Bill, it was kind of hard to, f- to get from him whether he just did the Elvis portion or he did the whole, uh, you know, the other people as well, because there should be footage of the other people uh, that were in that as well. So you'd have Bill Haley in the Comets and uh, Pat Boone and Four Lads and Patricia Wright. But I don't know if the film exists, I would think it would be all of them because uh, they filmed them all. They all did their numbers. Uh, so what I had read, that when uh, Rain Santilli bought the footage, it was very short. And uh, I think it was only Elvis that, that Bill Randall sold him. So it may not have been the whole film. But, of course, uh, Ray Santilli was mainly interested in the Elvis footage, I would think, uh, and not the others. But the others would be fun to see too. Bill Haley, uh, he was a big star then. Yes, yes, it uh, would It would be very interesting. Another thing that's just struck me as well is uh, Elvis did a, uh, a picture test for uh, The Rainmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, we've only seen uh, stills, still photographs from that as well, haven't we? 
Right. Yeah. A, a screen, a sc a screen test for. Um, screen test. Yeah. Uh, and again, you would have thought that that would have been filmed. Yeah. Well, there again, it could be, uh, you know, in some film can somewhere in uh, in Hollywood, if that's where it was done. Uh, and the thing is that people, you need somebody who really is good at digging this stuff up because it's not easy to find. Uh, this Chris Kennedy I mentioned before, he did some research, he said, uh, on Bill Randall and Amon Elvis and uh, trying to find that uh, Holy Grail film. And he had a hard time finding anything because it's not something that's going to just pop out at you. You've got to really do a lot of digging and looking around and asking people. And, uh, you know, it's so long after it happened that, you know, it's harder to get, you know, find out where the leads may bring you. Uh, you can't just go one place and think, well, that's it. You've got to check a lot of places and talk to different people. But there aren't many people left who were, you know, around at that time or involved in that. You know, I mentioned a few of the musicians that might still be alive. Mm. Scotty Moore, uh, I should mention the Scotty Moore website has a nice description of that 55 show uh, that he, uh, he he's no longer alive, of course, but uh, somebody did for him on his website, scottymoore.com, I guess it is, uh, a nice description of that film in 55 with some pictures, too, um, including the high school where it was done, Brooklyn High School in Cleveland. Yeah. Uh, so uh, people can check that out also. There's a lot of information on online as well, and people can check that way. That's one way to communicate to people these days is uh, online uh, to find out something. Uh, it may even talk to Ray Santilli, although I'd be very careful <laughs> if you spoke with him. <laughs> I'm not sure what information you'd get that would be accurate. But uh, he's the one who bought the film, after all. Yeah. yeah. And, and Bill Randall said he confirmed that, so it's not... You know, it's not a myth. But what he did with it, that's the question, uh, whether he still has it. I mean, is it possible that he may still have it in his collection somewhere? I tend to doubt it, but, um, you know, uh, it, if, it's very uh, mysterious. If it's he a, does, a if he does, what is he waiting for? <laughs> that's right, what I want to exactly. know. Ray, and what it, are you waiting for? <laughs> <laughs> and from what I read about him, he wouldn't have waited very long. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. In fact, he sold it right away. I mean, he bought it, I think that in the article it said for $1.9 he sold it to Polygram for $2.2 million. Wow. So he made a, a profit right away. Yeah. If that's, if that's accurate, I don't know if that figure is accurate, but that's what it said. I don't think Bill Randall agreed with that figure, but who knows what it, it was a lot of money anyway, I'm sure. I don't think Bill would have sold it, you know, for a small amount of money. He, uh, I, I sort of felt when I talked to him, I might add, that uh, he was sitting on this too long. Even in the 70s when I was talking to him, there still would have been a tremendous interest in that film if he had convinced a movie studio or somebody else to release it. And uh, he just wouldn't do it. I think he just thought he had a gold mine. He was going to wait, and it's going to just increase in value. And uh, I just felt that he was, uh, you know, he's missing the missing the power. That uh, you know, this was a time in the '70s. There was a lot of revivals of, of '50s music. I remember the different shows that with all the rock groups, you know, that came out. Even Bill Haley came back into popularity. Yes, because he had disappeared basically in the '60s. Well, Roger, it's it's been fascinating talking to you about uh, Elvis and the uh, the movie short and, and and all the peripheral things we uh, discussed as well. And I just hope that uh, this maybe somewhere somehow this uh, piece of film uh, surfaces in the not too distant future. Well, I would hope so too. I would love to see it myself. Uh, I would hope that somebody will find it in the future. But in the meantime, I would say that Bill Randall hopefully will get more attention. He really belongs in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, for example. I don't believe he is. He was a Cleveland disc jockey, the number one disc jockey in the country in the 50s. And yet yeah. he's not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Alan Freed is there and others. I think Murray Decay may be in there. Uh, some of the other DJs are in the, you know, they're in the Hall of Fame, but he's not. I wrote to the director of that some years ago and asked them, and he agreed with me. He said he should be in here, but he's not the one that decides it. It's decided by a committee of, uh, of executives, whoever it is, who decides who should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is in Cleveland, after all. 
and that's where Bill Randall, you know, made his success. So it, it's yeah, it strikes me as very unfair. It is unfair, and I I, I just keep hoping that more credit be given to Bill because I think he deserves it for you know the work that he did, especially with Elvis's career, his early career. I really think that Elvis um, did some of his best recordings in the 50s and early 60s. Um, that you know later on he had a lot of popular songs, but I think he did his best work, you know, in the uh, in the earlier years of the of the 50s and, uh, and early 60s. I, I don't want to cut it off, you know, by saying you know after Blue Hawaii everything was terrible. Uh, some people feel that way, or. Uh, Viva Las Vegas, whatever movie you might mention, mm. uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to cut off any particular time because, you know, he made good recordings throughout his career, even toward the end. It was just that I think in the early years, especially he, uh, he had so much drive. He was electric again, <laughs> keep mentioning that word, uh, <laughs> that that is really when he did his most dynamic singing and recording, I believe, those earlier recordings the Sun recordings, and of course the RCA, early RCA recordings. And his ballads, I should mention that I've read, and I agree with Elvis, that his ballads were his favorite kind of music, not the up-tempos, not the jailhouse rock, but, you know, the songs like uh, Don't or uh, Loving You or Love Me Tender. Yeah, He liked those songs more. He liked to sing them more because they were similar to the gospel music. Yeah. that he did you know he would devote more time to those sort of songs in his live performances and he would just rush through the ones like all shook up and hound dog and all those right that's right and that just shows you that uh, you know he preferred those slow slow songs more uh, because they're more emotional that's one reason he could you know he can get into it more uh he put more emotion into it because he you know he had a lot of emotion in his singing so i think that that was more important to him yeah. than the up-tempo stuff that he did. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you, Roger, for your time today. Uh, and uh, I'm sure uh, our listeners were fascinated to to hear all your stories. Uh, so thank you very much. Okay, fine. And I hope they'll check out my site if they get a chance. Early okay. Elvis. Okay. Thanks, Roger. Okay, thank you. All the best. Thanks once again to Roger for joining me on the show today. You can contact me by email at ElvisTheUltimateFanChannel at gmail.com and on Facebook and Twitter at ElvisTheUltimateFanChannel. All my podcasts are available on all good podcast providers such as Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Google Podcast, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio, to name just a few. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time for another episode from Elvis, the Ultimate Fan Channel podcast. Mm-hmm.